Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Mathis today, and we're going to be discussing the Mathis model, a trauma-informed approach to help clients uncover the foundational issues that keep them stuck. I'd like to introduce Dr. Mathis. She's licensed in Arizona, California, and Hawaii, so she has a lot of continuing ed education credit she has to get. She's a master addictions counselor with co-occurring disorders, certified EMDR consultant, and a certified brain spotting therapist. So she has a ton of tools in her toolbox. She's the author and creator of the Mathis Model and the Enlightened Life Program. Dr. Mathis uses a trauma-informed approach to help clients uncover the foundational issues that keep them stuck, repeating self-sabotaging behaviors in order to help them live and embody a more enlightened life. And in this context, life stands for live, intentional, free, and empowered. Welcome, Dr. Mathis. Thank you. So we're going to talk a little bit today, just kind of starting in introducing people if they haven't already watched some of the, the trauma videos on Counselor Toolbox or learn more about trauma before coming here. How prevalent is trauma in, you know, the everyday population? I think trauma is extremely prevalent. Now, I always preface this with you know, we all have uh, glasses with which we view the world, right? Mm -hmm. So I certainly see the world through a trauma-informed lens. And, and as such, I have done my own investigative work and really uncovered tremendous amounts of trauma in the population. And I think sometimes it's very clear and overt you know, what psychological uh, trauma looks like. And other times it's very innocuous. And I work with clients that would never use that word to describe what's going on. However, clinically, I certainly would. And trauma really is such a broad uh word to cover a number, you know, of, of different psychological experiences. And so that that's really where I've gotten my belief system from is that I, I truly believe trauma is, is very broad and uh, therefore it impacts many, many people. And, you know, if you go to SAMHSA, they say that uh, 
the percentage of people with trauma is 61% of 51% of women report exposure to at least one lifetime traumatic event. And 90% of clients in public behavioral health care settings have experienced trauma. Now, that sounds like a huge number, but, you know, I don't think that that's even capturing everybody. When you factor in the adverse childhood experiences and when you factor in other things that people may perceive as traumatic or Absolutely. that may have a traumatic effect on them, I think it's way higher than even the, the 61 and 51% that they're estimating. I would agree with that. And this definition sounds like more of a, a typical PTSD type of uh, traumatic exposure rather than what we would refer to as, uh, you know, developmental trauma, which is sort of what we get from the ACEs uh, and, and or just, you know, repeated traumas. They're sort of secondary in nature. We often think of these, we like to refer to them, right, as big T traumas. These are the really overt traumas that everybody knows about because they uh, often result in PTSD and PTSD helped us to be able to describe what was going on with someone uh, as they went through an experience like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, now, can you talk a little bit or what is your feeling about HPA axis dysregulation and hypocortisolism as it relates to trauma? Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, it, yes. Um, so I think let's put some more common language to that just to make it a little easier to digest, sure. right? So what does that mean? Uh, it's, a, it, it's an offset really of our nervous system being dysregulated mm -hmm. for simplicity purposes. And what happens if you agree with this, uh, you know, model here uh, and how it presents symptomatically is we see uh, changes in hormones, hypo, hyperthyroidism. However, it's all intricately related to stress. And I think that's the most important component to tie back into trauma. So when we experience trauma, that is a stressor and it impacts our body and it impacts our brain. And the HPA axis dysregulation is also uh, a manifestation of stress responses. Mm -hmm. and, and thinking back, you know, with you being... Um certified in EMDR too, after a trauma, um, how it impacts the, the, the amygdala and the HPA axis or what I call the threat response system tends to stay moderately activated in order to Correct. protect the person from experiencing another trauma. Um, yes. Yeah, it's like hyper uh, hypervigilance, right? And the body is very defensive in an attempt to protect. And so the midbrain, our limbic brain and body really are in defensive mode as I always refer to it as a preemptive strike. Right. It's our right. natural defense mechanism to try and keep us safe. However, it sometimes works against us because we're not meant to be in a defensive stance guarding uh, towards safety uh, the majority of the time. And this often is what happens when you've experienced trauma. 
which my guess is, is going to lead us nicely into the insanity cycle in a minute. But can you briefly <laughs> summarize the, the Mathis model for us? Yes. So the Mathis model really is, uh, a, it's based off of, you know, a number of different interventions that I've utilized throughout my practice. And it is truly the foundation with which I see all of my clients. So for me, it's a stepping off point to really figure out uh, what's going on and what sorts of interventions, you know, are needed. It's extremely individualized and, and quite frankly, it's pretty easy to understand and use. And so the, the premise is, is it really shows us how to get out of these repetitive habitual patterns that are often unconscious for us. We don't even know that we're in what I refer to as the insanity cycle. And the model then allows us to rewire these patterns and essentially write a new script for our lives so that we can be more in charge. We can integrate our, our body and our minds uh, to be more intentional uh, with how we're responding to the world around us. So that's it in a nutshell. And and we had talked briefly on, on email before about um, the book Restoring Sanctuary and the sanctuary model. And one of the things that they talk about in, in that book a lot is changing the dialogue from why is this person doing this to what happened to this person that would motivate or prompt this sort of behavior and absolutely and understanding yeah, absolutely. all behavior has has a function and a purpose that's right everything we do we do for a reason oftentimes we don't know why we're doing it uh and we get frustrated right but the behavior that we are engaging in is an attempt to to get our needs met or an attempt faulty well well that may be to connect, uh, to keep ourselves safe, et cetera. So yes, there is, I call it the, you know, the insanity cycle is why we do what we do. So tell me a little bit more about the insanity cycle. How would you examine this or, or talk about this with a client? So typically how I introduce the insanity cycle to the client is often when I'm doing the information gathering. So it, kind of comes up naturally when a client first comes to see you because they're telling you what's going on, right? And and so I use a lot of psychoeducation and relate it back then to whatever's bringing them in to counseling. So this could be this could be a behavior that they're aware of is theirs or it could be a behavior that they don't like in somebody else. So how I start the dialogue really is just explaining about how our brain works with regard to creating patterns mm -hmm. and how behaviors work, why we do what we do. And so that's how I pose it to all clients. Do you ever wonder why? And I often will, will say people do what they do. Sometimes it's easier if we look at it from an outside example. And it just really depends on who's sitting in front of you. You know, if, if there's enough insight and awareness, then you can start to um, engage with that individual 
rather than having to do it as an outside example. But that's typically what I will do is just talk about, you know, you ever wonder why you can't stop eating that, you know, roll of uh, Girl Scout cookies, yet you really don't want to. Mm -hmm. So I do my best to use an innocuous uh, example that is very relatable. And then we can start to take that innocuous example and relate it right back to what the client is experiencing. Sure. Okay. Um, and, and in the article that you wrote, you talked about resourcing, regulation, and stabilization. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works into the Mathis model? Absolutely. So anytime we're stuck in one of these patterns or in our insanity cycle, this is what I would call an activation phase. So our, our mind and body is on high alert. So our amygdala is, you know, firing. And in order to investigate what's going on, that's the curiosity component, we really have to get into a space of neutrality. And so that's what I call uh, resourcing, regulation, and stabilization. I explain it to clients by using the Vanilla Ice song, um, Ice Ice Baby, and I say, you know, you have to stop collaborate and listen. And this to me <laughs> is an adult timeout. So we just are, str- we're attempting to stop that cog of the cycle of sort of spinning out of control. That in and of itself is step one. If we are activated or quote unquote triggered, we are not going to be in a space to use our rational prefrontal cortex and start looking at what's going on. We're just in the get me out of here. I don't like this. This is everybody else's fault. Oh my God, why does this keep happening to me? And so we just want to go into a space of timeout so we can start to uh, explore that. And there's many different ways that we can resource, stabilize, and regulate our clients. We also call this coping skills, right? So What are some of the ways that uh, you deal with stress? Now, sometimes these might not be the healthiest ways. And so before we go anywhere, we're going to start implementing and teaching more empowered coping skills that are more in alignment with how they would like to respond or, or get their body into a neutral state. Sometimes clients are so out of touch with their feeling state they're just numb. And so they don't even know. And it, it's as easy as, can you feel your feet on the floor? No. Okay. Let's take our shoes off. Um, I had a client a couple of weeks ago who said, you know, remember when you told me to uh, put my feet on the floor and asked me if I could feel the floor and I told you no? <laughs> She's, and I said, yeah, I do. It was about three years ago. <laughs> And she said, you know, sometimes I wish I could go back to those moments, but uh, I'm really impressed with how far I've come along in being able to get in touch with my body and know when I am stressed or when I am entering into my insanity cycle. Right. And and part of the model is is not saying that you're going to never be in the insanity cycle, but recognizing when you start going in there so you can resource, regulate, and stabilize so you don't get caught up in that trap. Absolutely. We all go back into it. It's just sort of the journey of life. And the idea is not to stay trapped in it and really be able to empower yourself with, uh, should you desire, going in and really figuring out what's at the 
cause of this? What's going on? It's, it's rarely ever what it looks like in front of you. So there has to be some detective work, right? you know, to find out what's going on. I call them opportunities, hidden little gems. <laughs> well, and going back to eating that, that roll of Girl Scout cookies, you know, why are you doing that? Well, because I'm hung- No, I'm not hungry. Hmm. I don't know why I'm doing it. And then you have to That's really right. search. Is, is it habit? Is it boredom? Is it stress? Is it, you know, what is it that's triggering that reaction? And what is that Absolutely. behavior providing for you? Exactly. And that's really what we're doing. So we're putting on our detective caps and starting to look at what's going on. And I always, I always take it back to an unmet need. So, you know, what needs aren't being met and this can be a broad range of needs, but Maslow's hierarchy does a great job of sort of expressing all, you know, what our different needs are. And oftentimes we don't pay attention or even know what we need. And so we are attempting to get these needs met without a full grasp on, you know, what it is we're really actually going after. Right, right. So what are the specific treatment goals of the Mathis model? If you had to say, you know, if when clinicians implement this model, they can help clients, you know. Yes. So the treatment goals of the Mathis model would be to identify your insanity cycles. And uh, it we all have different cycles and it's it's basically being able to to identify what is going on so what are your cycles and really dissecting how we keep these cycles alive that way we can go into rewiring or rewriting these scripts and then thirdly is uh creating and then cultivating an enlightened life which is really just a healthy way of responding to the world around us where we are more aware and intentional with our responses we're able to regulate our body and and just know when we're in uh you know maybe a touchy area like ooh something's going off in me maybe i need to take a minute and breathe and reset myself so that i can come at this with a clearer mind state so those are the the treatment goals are to be able to identify rewire rewrite and then live the life that you want right right awesome um now the three pillars you referred to them a little bit earlier the three pillars of the mathis model are compassion understanding and curiosity which you know i love and so tell me a little bit about how do you know you know if how does a client know if they don't have compassion what does it look like if they don't have compassion yeah, they might not know. You know, I well, I go back to, gosh, I didn't know <laughs> what uh, self-compassion looked like. So I think that it can be very difficult to, um, to, to identify. I use the term inner critic. That typically, for most people, resonates with them. If, if somebody doesn't understand what I mean by inner critic, I will say that voice that tells you what a piece of crap you are. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that one. I okay, yeah, I know that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. 
because we all have that voice. <laughs> and again, so, so compassion, so self-compassion is really starting to work with that inner critic, that negative monologue uh, that has been ingrained really since, since childhood, early childhood. And so it's, it's often out of our awareness. It just sort of happens automatically without much ability to interrupt it. Now, some people are able to interrupt it without getting psychological counseling and help. And some of us aren't. Um, I know what a light bulb moment it was for me when I heard that term inner critic. And I was like, oh, is that what's going on? <laughs> you know? Right. So why do, why do some people have comp self-compassion and other people don't? I think that we are, you know, we learn how to be compassionate towards ourselves and others based off of how we interpret our experiences and, and how our brain and body register different traumas. So there's no rhyme or reason as to how or why. So it's not good or bad that someone is able to do it because you can learn how to do it at any time. And I think that's the most important thing. And that is where understanding comes in, is it's really understanding that we process information differently. And to get out of that mindset of the inner critic is bad, I want it to go away, uh, and, and oh, somebody else is able to do this and I can't, because that's very shaming and that's going to keep us stuck in an insanity cycle. It's going to activate our amygdala and limbic system and our body's going to get flooded with all these stress hormones and we're not going to be able to, uh, you know, get out of that mindset mm -hmm. without self-compassion. Right, right. Um, so lack of self-compassion generally, I mean, obviously it's, it's devastating to your self-esteem. It can be very disempowering. Yes. It can make people feel hopeless and helpless and all that kind of stuff. So from your experience and from your working with clients, what are some three techniques that might help people develop compassion? So I think really identifying. So the first thing that we have to do is identify these negative scripts or the voice, the... Um, the inner critic, if you will, and befriend it. So this is where we find out what its purpose is. Why? It, it's not really, the inner critic does not want to beat us down. It really is a preemptive strike. It's, it's a faulty defense mechanism that is completely outdated in the adult world. And it's an attempt to protect us from criticism from others. And so we turn it on ourselves. And so I think the first step is being able to identify the inner critic and really get a handle on what is it saying to you? Because you're gonna find themes, mm -hmm. right? You're gonna find what the belief systems are, what your fears are, what your insecurities are. And I think that's vitally important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so identifying those inner scripts is, is the first one. Then once, yes. once you've identified them, what do you do with them? You so then we learn how to reframe these scripts. And this happens in, you know, this can happen in a lot of different ways. I like to 
thank my inner critic for bringing things to my attention and then interpret its actual meaning. And that's part of the reframing efforts. But it's a, and then the third, my third example is really the use of positive affirmations. And so it's, it's not discounting uh, the inner critic. It's, it's, welcoming the inner critic as a provider of information so that then we can become aware of and rewrite what that message is, is through the use of positive affirmations, positive statements. And sometimes it's as simple as acknowledging this scares me. Right. Right. So, so then, so an inner critic might say, there is no way you can ever, you know, complete graduate school and, and you're, you're going to fail. And so don't even bother trying and thanking the inner critic and going, all right, thank you for letting me know that I'm nervous about this. However, you know, and how now do I want to proceed? Because now it's in my awareness. Now I've stopped the cog of the insanity cycle. Now I don't have to get stuck in self-sabotage and drop out of school. Right. Right. Sometimes when I talk to clients about the inner critic, I, make the very antiquated reference, and but most of them still get it. Uh, did you ever watch the Muppets when you were growing up? Yes. Jim Henson's Muppet, Muppets. Yep. And they had the uh, those two old guys that were in the balcony that just heckled everybody. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite examples for clients. Once people are compassionate with themselves and they're willing to be kind to themselves, then they need to cultivate understanding but what specifically do we want them to understand clients often look at me and they're like well what is it I'm supposed to understand here yeah so understanding in this sense is coming into a space of neutrality and avoiding judgment so that is going to be how we get understanding for ourselves is if we can stay out of self-judgment. Okay. You know, um, what the opposite of understanding looks like is blame and shame. Mm -hmm. So if we don't approach something that's going on with us from a space of understanding or non-judgment, we almost inevitably are going to go right back into inner critic, negativity, complaining, a defensive stance. And so that's the importance of understanding. So understanding, not only understanding what's triggering us or activating us and what's keeping us or sending us into our insanity cycle, but also understanding what we need and being mindful of what we need in the moment and understanding ourselves. And okay, when I have this feeling, that means... I'm getting anxious. We're going to start to be able, by engaging in self-compassion and understanding, we're going to start to be able to uncover what our needs are. And this then leads to how we can get curious about what's going on and start to dissect how we might be getting those needs met in ways that really are self-defeating or self-sabotaging in nature. So one of the first questions that I ask is, you know, I do a lot of reframing of, of what's happening to start to create and cultivate understanding. Something as simple as, doesn't it make sense that you would want X, Y, or Z? If we can get to a yes, we can move forward. 
Mm-hmm. If we cannot get to a yes, my guess is, is we are not, we're still having inner critic, uh, large and in charge, and we are not in a neutral space. And so that's sort of the progression with which I use these three pillars. So it's, it's very clear to me that, no, it doesn't make sense. I go, oh, okay, what's happening here? Right. Because right. it does to me. So. Right. <laughs> So, so how can I help you see, see it from my point of view and get out of your singular focus? Yeah. So one of the ways that we develop understanding is being able to identify these negative patterns like that. That's why identification of what the inner critic is and what it's saying and what those belief systems are behind it are so important because we really can't get into a space of understanding uh, without judgment. We are very hard on ourselves and it's, when we are engaging in behaviors that we don't like and um, are embarrassing or that we feel like we don't have control to change, uh, it's very easy to go into judgment and shame ourselves. Mm-hmm. True, true. How do we encourage clients to develop understanding of themselves on a day-to-day basis? So just, just sort of in the example that I gave with regard to doesn't it make sense that, you know, so it's normalizing the desire to have certain needs met. Now, the importance of that is, is we want to, and we deserve to get our needs met, but we often don't believe that. So we can bring in a neutral third party to show what it looks like to have self-compassion and understanding. It's great if the individual has children or children that they are close to. Pets work also very well because we're very compassionate and understanding <laughs> towards our the children in our life as well as our pets. And so just showing how we do it with them and why we do it with them helps bring about the importance of being able to do it for ourselves if we want to break out of these patterns. Exactly. And one of the things I talk about with my clients sometimes is I'll hear some of those negative self-statements that they've got going on, that inner critic, and I'll say, okay, I hear what you're telling yourself right now. Let me ask you something. Would you say that to your child? Exactly. No. Not consciously anyway. And, And if they did, they would feel horrible. Right. And so I'm like, well, why is it that you deserve to tell yourself that then? Why is it? How is it okay? Oh my gosh, I don't even know how it's okay. I've just always done it. And there's your in. So maybe it's an invitation. Maybe there's another way. Maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe. I'm not saying there is. I'm just going to put it out there. And so it's sometimes you need to go slow. You need to go at the client's pace, but we want to crack these doors open to 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 get them to, to start to look inside of themselves. Right. And, you know, one of my, I don't know, favorite stories is probably the right word to use. But when my kids were younger, I would, you know, I, I misplaced things, especially my keys a lot. And <laughs> I would misplace my keys and my son would find them somewhere or something. And I'd be like, oh, mommy's a moron. And one day... I've misplaced my keys and he found them and he just walks up to me and he hands them to me. He's like, you're such a moron. And I was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) That's not okay for you to be saying to me. And then it occurred to me, well, all he 
known is me saying that to me. And I'm just like, okay, got to check that behavior because I would never say that to somebody else. So why is it okay to say to me? That's exactly what I'm talking about. These are so out of our awareness sometimes. We don't even realize that we are calling ourselves names um, and and then what how that uh, you know teaches other people in our lives to treat us as well and it's it's not intentional and right. that's the whole point and purpose of this is to really get back in in charge right of how you want to experience your life exactly which moves us to our final pillar and probably my favorite curiosity um, I love curiosity because I always, I want to know why. I want to know why things Mm -hmm. work. I want to know how things work. If I'm working with a client and an intervention that seems like it should work isn't working, I want to know why. So I start investigating and that's just how my mind works. But I see a lot of people who get stuck in that box and they're not curious. They're like, okay, I'm depressed. I'm going to take antidepressants. If those don't work, then yes. I'm screwed. It's, so what it looks like to not have curiosity is to uh, be living with very rigid black and white uh, way of viewing the world. And it's so curiosity is really that range in the gray space of, hey, I wonder if, I wonder if. There's something else here. Maybe, maybe I don't have all the answers. And, and that can be a tough question if your inner critic is so pervasive that you're depressed and, and anxious, you know, you can't get there. You can't even get into a safe enough space to say, hey, I wonder if there is an alternative to the way that I'm experiencing this. I wonder if there's different ways of viewing this or, or responding to it. It's almost easier just to blame others. Well, it's really scary when you're stuck in that really deep depression to think, well, I wonder if there's a way, a different way to view this. And then if I try it and it turns out that I still feel bad, then I'm going to feel even more helpless. So I might as well not try. That's correct. It's very fear-based. And when you've had repeated traumas throughout your life, I mean, to me, hey, I get it. It makes sense to me why you are afraid to try that. I don't blame you one little bit. So in repairing, you know, and that's, again, that's understanding. I need to understand where they're coming from. And if they're starting to understand where they're coming from, it, it allows curiosity to happen naturally. And this must take place before you can start to investigate, you know, these cycles that we keep getting stuck in. Right, right. Why don't some people have curiosity? It's a defense mechanism, right? So um, if, if we are constantly defending in, in a constant state of stress and, and fear that things are not going to work out or we're going to always feel this way, it's hopeless. It's just such a terrible um, space to be in. And why is that? That's because of the experiences that we've gone through that have uh, uh, created this defensive stance. Now, not everyone uh, interprets trauma and processes through trauma the same way. So if our brain and body get stuck in a belief 
system and a feeling state that's maladaptive, you're going to have difficulty with curiosity. Sure. I mean, it's definitely hard to want to try something new or step out of your comfort zone if you've done it in the past and Mm -hmm. you've gotten your hand slapped or something bad has happened. So it it discourages you from even trying to think about alternatives. Yes. Um, So just in closing, can you um, kind of put a big bow and and summarize the Mathis model and tell people, I know you you, you said you've got a book that's coming out in the not-too-distant future. Um, Where are they able to get this book so they can learn more about the Mathis model and start figuring out how to implement it with their clients? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I would say is if you're interested in learning more about the, the Mathis model, which is essentially learning sort of a platform and and just having tools to break out of these self-sabotaging cycles, i.e. this insanity cycle, and create and cultivate an enlightened life so that you can live intentionally free and empowered. You can visit my website, which is drjennifermathis.com. And once the book is published, it will be available on Amazon. I'll also have a link on my website. And I hope that, you know, lots of clinicians are able to utilize this model and and work with their clients to help them break out of their insanity cycles. Awesome. Um, And I'm trying to pull up your website really close, really quick. Uh, Here we go. Um, So this is Dr. Mathis's website, and you can learn more about her and what she does, and this is also where you'll be able to find the book, um, The Mathis Model, um, in the not-too-distant future. And what about The Enlightened Life? Is that one already available, or is that still in in press? So The Enlightened Life is my therapeutic program, and it's based off of The Mathis Model. And so there will be an accompanying workbook that uh, to go with the, the Mathis Model book so that clinicians will have different uh, therapeutic assignments and things like that to help their clients live an enlightened life. Well, fabulous. Fabulous. I appreciate you being with me today, Dr. Mathis, and I look forward to talking with you in the future. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.